Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, uh, there's a lot of joy in doing this American Shoreline Podcast and the whole network. And uh, you get occasionally really special days, and this is one of them, because we get to introduce a new show and we get to introduce a new host who I am just absolutely enthralled with already. She is spectacular, and this show is going to be so interesting and so different from everything on the podcast. Uh, we're going to get to talk today to Helen Brawl. That's right, Peter. Uh, and and we are privileged to be talking to Helen Brawl today and to have her join the network of American Shoreline Podcast we are. network hosts. Yeah, Truly. We um, are privileged to and, work with her. And this new show... Uh, which is called North Coast Chronicles, Tales yeah. from the Great Lakes, yeah. is an interesting new offering here on ASPN where we are going to explore yeah. some of the culture and history and um, tradition of yeah. the Great Lakes, an area that I have to say we've covered a little bit, but we have so much more meat on the yeah. bone, and Helen's going to help us address that. She is. I mean, we get overlooked a little bit, even though we, we try uh, on Coastal News today to cover what's happening in the Great Lakes. Uh, we overlook it, and that's why this show is going to bring that into focus for all of our listeners. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Helen and learning about the North Coast Chronicles podcast that will be coming on ASPN this month. That's right, Peter, and it is going to be a fun show today talking to Helen. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Helen. A pleasure to have you on the American Shoreline podcast, but even more special, a real privilege to have you join the ASPN community. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really fun to be here. Well, to for the sake of the audience, a quick introduction, Helen. Uh, you are currently serving as the executive director of the U.S. Committee on the Maritime Transportation System a federal entity, which I'll hope you can explain just a bit, and have had that position uh, since July 2006, I believe appointed by uh, Secretary of Transportation Leon Panetta into that position. Uh, actually, it was uh, Norman Minetta. Ah, Norman Minetta. Good grief. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. And uh, former the, formerly the Executive Director of the Great Lakes Shipping Association, a Canals Fellow from way back at the time when I was starting my professional life in the 80s as well uh so and for our listeners out there the host of the north coast chronicles podcast coming to aspn so welcome to asp and welcome to the network thank you it's uh, just an honor to be part of aspn really looking forward to um joining you with this podcast truly well thank you so much uh helen let's just start and learn a little bit more about you 
can you tell us about kind of your early um, interests? Were you interested in the ocean and, and maritime stuff from an early age? How did you become connected uh, with this world? I think it really all comes down to the fact that Lake Erie was my playground. Really? I grew up, yeah, I grew up on the south shores of Lake Erie um, all year. And then in the summers, we went to an island in Lake Erie. So again, it was my playground. Uh, and so to me, um, being around the water, being around the Great Lakes, being around Lake Erie is really part of my fiber. I didn't think so much about oceanography except that um, I watched Flipper on TV uh, and loved it to death and thought, wow, that sounds so interesting. Um, but I didn't picture myself as an oceanographer or engaged with the oceans per se. Um, but I certainly um, loved the Great Lakes. And um, my father, as his post-retirement job, became the port director in Lorraine, Ohio. It's really what we call a laker port. Uh, a smaller port brings in a lot of salt, um, taconite, um, uh, things like that, probably sand and gravel. Um, and he loved that job because he grew up on the lake and he was a uh, you know boater as a young age. I think he even um, ran to just over the Canadian border when he was a child um, during Prohibition to pick up some things out of a floorboard of a house. <laughs> gravel, I think <laughs> I they were yeah. uh, picking up. Uh, it's a story there. I wish we could, could find out more about, but unfortunately, that's probably, that's gone with him. Um, but he loved that job, and he talked about the boats. Uh, and at that time, U.S. shipbuilding was in Lorraine, Ohio, and there were even that's when it was in the heyday of building the thousand-footer uh, Lakers. And so he was there for dedications, and we heard about it. He just loved it. And um, my younger brother—I'm a family of seven children—but uh, my my younger brother um, uh, loved loved going to the island he loved being around the ferry boats he would practice throwing the rope you know as if he was a you know worked on the boat i mean as a child he he, he loved it so much wow. so he went to the great lakes maritime academy in traverse city michigan um and then uh, began to sail on the lakes so when i finally went to washington um and worked believe it or not for the oceanography subcommittee which doesn't exist anymore that mm -hmm. entire full committee uh was disbanded in i believe the early 90s it was the um uh, the uh, uh, merchant marine and fisheries committee it, it was disbanded and fisheries went to resources committee and uh, merchant marine and coast guard went to a subcommittee under the transportation and infrastructure committee on the helm um it was so interesting how i was able to connect dots um Primarily, when legislation was being proposed or there was appropriations discussions, nine times out of ten, oh, I'd say ten times out of ten, the Great Lakes was never mentioned. They'd say, oceans, coasts, and I'd say, and Great Lakes. I realized I could yeah. impact the ability of people considering the Great Lakes. Um, so, so and, then, and then the maritime side. I got to do so many things on the maritime side, um, but the evolution to being in maritime transportation really was an evolution. But... Um, Honestly, I think it all really came down to the fact that Lake Erie was my backyard. Yeah, well, that's an absolutely incredible connection. In the blood. In Yeah, <laughs> just totally, all the way through from Merchant Marine Brother, Port Director Father, and... Uh, throwing the rope. Throwing the rope. I have, a, so I, I have a question, Tyler, so I want to ask, because uh, Helen said she comes from a family of seven children. Uh, I come from a uh, family of eight children. 
So one of the things about big families is I'm always interested in where in the packing order you are. So uh, <laughs> it tells you a lot I, I about I agree. It. I find it very uh, yeah. interesting. So tell me the order. Where are you? And uh, give, give us a lowdown. So my younger brother, Russ, and I are the bonus babies. Okay. So that means we were the last. Okay. I'm number six. He's number seven. Mm. And there's five years between my next older sister and I. So in many respects, we were like the second family. Yeah. You know, my parents were in a renaissance. Kids were out of the house. Um, I think our older <laughs> siblings would say we were spoiled. Um, I'd like to say we were fortunate. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, I yeah, understand. Yeah, it's so interesting. How about you? Where are you from? Well, I'm, 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 I'm seventh of eight. So my little brother oh my and I gosh. are the last two. And uh, there, is a, there is a difference of view in the family between the, as we say, the the bottom four and the top four in the family, uh, you know, because we, our parents were in different positions in their life when they were born, and my older siblings grew up with my father in the prime of his career as a fighter pilot, and uh, we were in the retirement age of my father, you know, growing up. So yeah, there's a big difference, but there's a. Uh, I'm glad we're both. So we're both second to last. That's good. We're going to yeah, get along yeah. great. That's okay. Cool. <laughs> You guys, that's that's <laughs> family, dyna- we say, family right? dynamics. Big we're families. bonded. Yeah, yeah, you're bonded. We're bonded. Well, I want to hear more about this era of Lake Erie. Um, yeah, growing up. What? Yeah. So it's an indu- you mentioned it's an industrial kind of shoreline there, uh, bringing in cargo um, and making these thousand foot. You called them a laker. What's yeah. what's a Laker and what's the what is what does the marine transportation profile of Lake Erie look like here? I mean, are these burning coal? Like what's can you paint a picture of what the scene was like? Well, I think Lake Erie is representative of the entire Great Lakes when it comes to maritime transportation. Um, a Laker is a vessel that was built for the lakes. And the all of the US flag Lakers um, none of them can leave the Great Lakes because they are all too big to get into the Welland Canal and get around Niagara Falls. The Canadians also have Lakers that don't get out, but they also have Lakers that do get out, which then are called salties. So the U.S. has Lakers, the Canadians have salty Lakers, and then there are salties. And those are the ships that come in from overseas, uh, virtually all foreign flags, um, bringing cargo from international ports unknown. But the Lake Erie ports as I said, a representative of the lakes in general. Um, And that's to say that you might consider the Great Lakes um, a bulk and break bulk um, uh, marketplace. That's as compared to containers. For if you went into New New York, New Jersey or LA Long Beach, you'd see huge container ships and huge cranes bringing containers uh, off and on. And that's why you have, you know, shoes from Taiwan on the, on, on the shelves. But, with um, the Great Lakes industrial base, um, steel making in particular, um, taconite, which is mined in Minnesota, has to make, well, it's the ore is mined, it's turned into a, a kind of a, say a pebble, but that's a bad way to express it, called taconite. And that taconite is very heavy stuff. You don't really bring it down um, um, by rail car. You certainly don't move it by truck. So these Lakers were built to move it from the upper lakes to the lower lakes. And a lot of them have self, they're self unloading, which means they have cranes built right onto the top of them. And they're conveyor belt kind of cranes. And they're set up so they can go to all kinds of nooks and crannies. That's what's so interesting. And I can't wait to talk about it in the podcast um, because there's so many nooks and crannies of the Great Lakes that you just don't even think about. And a lot of them are because the, um, the port area, or basically sometimes just a dock, 
um, belongs to the the company. So it might belong to the steelmaking company. It might belong to um, um, an electricity, a coal burning electricity plant that needs to have coal delivered. Um, or maybe you know sand and gravel um, for construction purposes, or salt for street you know uh, covering purposes, and um, so those Lakers are built just for that. So the Laker reports are relatively small, except for probably Cleveland and Toledo would consider themselves larger, but really none of the ports in the Great Lakes, for the most part, over history, are moving containers. There's been some, and there's been some container lines and regularly scheduled stuff, but they've come and gone for for reasons that we could go on for all day about. Um, so um, Lorraine at the time had U.S. shipbuilding. It eventually moved out, went to Tampa, I think. Um, but uh, by the way, owned by um, Steinbrenner, um, who really? happened to yeah, own the Yankees. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, so um, these ports primarily are bringing in steel uh, to go to the, um, for car making uh, purposes or for make refrigerators in the Detroit area. Um, and they bring in steel and they come in big coils. So again, these big coils are put into big hatches. They come out um, and then generally those ships will go to another port and take grain or something out to go out. That's kind of the international side of the business. Steel in, grain out is kind of what we say in the Great Lakes. For the Lakers, they're moving all those bulk products just around the Great Lakes. It's just fascinating. And there are folks out there who are ship watchers. If you go onto Facebook, there are ship watchers and they'll say, I saw this boat. I take a picture of a boat. They are, they are, they're adorable. They go go to ports to see boats. They take pictures of, 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 of boats uh, on the lakes. And I say boats instead of ship because there's this kind of old term in the Great Lakes for shipping called steamboating, steamboating. Mm. So sometimes we say boats and I don't mean to insult folks who prefer that I use the term ships. Yes, they are ships. They're not tiny little boats. Um, um, but um, so, so um, um, there's so, just so many nooks and crannies in, on, you know, in Ohio on the North Coast. There's, there's uh, you know, coast from Erie all the way to, well, Erie, Pennsylvania, but then you come in and, uh, and, and Oswego and um, come all the way across to Cleveland and, uh, and Lorraine and uh, there's probably stuff going into Huron, Ohio and Toledo. So, um, and of course, the Toledo area has a lot of uh, Anderson grains and other companies are moving a lot of grain out of Toledo. So, um, uh, to say Laker literally means those ships that are that stay in the lakes. Yeah. Okay. So here's here's what's going through my mind, Peter. A lot there. There's a lot. There's so much going on there. But what I think is here's what's really shines to me is that uh, culturally here on the American shoreline, if we talk about the West Coast or the East Coast. Um, there's like, I think an immediate kind of coastal vibe. I don't know. I don't want to go coastal elite here, but you know, in many respects, the great lakes are kind of a forgotten, um, American sea body. And what's so fascinating about it is you think about the move West of America and, and also as that's happening in the 1800s, industrialization is happening with rail and steel manufacturing and these lakes and the natural resources that surround them become basically a highway system used in concert with rail and the development and population of these places. These were the greatest cities on earth, Detroit, Chicago. These were 
the the epitome of technology these were the san francisco's of the 1800s and globally i mean people from paris would come good. to yeah. to these areas this is where you know power was you know electricity and um we have kind of forgotten how cool this system is and also i, ha- I have to say it's also interesting because it industrialized so quick well, quickly. I mean, it's been it's been a long time now, but because all of this has happened, there is a track record of the environmental legacy of that in in the Great Lakes area. <clears throat> you know, surrounding not only the, in the water itself. I mean, just the yeah. you know, yeah. we talked about this with the Indiana Dunes National Park, which is right there along a line of steel mills right on the Lake Michigan shoreline there bottom i mean uh very interesting history that it's will be just so much fun helen to shine a light on yeah thanks uh it it, um you're talking about heyday and one of the podcasts i want to do uh i'm calling dance halls and full dress balls the forgotten golden age of the great lakes so so with this industrial complex at that time brought a lot of money so, um, and with that also brought um, a lot of fancy folks from the late 1800s um, who came to dedicated clubs, um, dedicated dance halls. There were a lot of ferry boats, um, I, speaking for Lake Erie anyway, a lot bringing people from Cleveland, Toledo, Detroit, all to these incredible areas um, and that happened all throughout the lakes. Uh, and eventually, of course, with that whole um uh, you know, golden age, things changed and, and modified. And um, there's, there are just so many pieces. And I just want to mention here. It just, uh, it, it just dawned on me that you're talking about shipping. The first ship to navigate the Great Lakes was the Griffin. It was a cargo ship that carried sixty tons, and it was built in 1679. Wow! Can you imagine? I, I find that mind-boggling. Yes. And it, it was launched in Niagara River, but it made its way to Green Bay. Um, over a period of time, I don't understand how it actually did that um, because I don't think we had the Welland Canal then. So I'm not sure how they got it around Niagara Falls. I'm, wow. I, obviously, there's the river and the capabilities, but my, I just find that mind-boggling. So Maybe a little portage, uh, there's a long a history boat. of the Great Lakes. Uh, you know, this is what's so exciting for us. I mean, I'm, I've not, I lived in Michigan as a child for a brief period of time, but I have no real connection or understanding to the Great Lakes region. Tyler's a Californian. Well, hold on a second. You know, hold on a second. I guess your family's got some yeah, Midwest I got some roots. Chicago roots. Yeah. Do you? Okay. I feel a very strong Lake Michigan kind of connect. Well, this, this show is going to be great for our audience, which is, tends to be a Marine Coastal professional uh, listenership, I think. Uh I'm really interested in the fact that, Helen, your show, The North Coast Chronicles, is really going to focus on the culture and the history, as Tyler was saying, and of this beautiful region of the U.S. and the history of it. And uh, I got to ask you, you Helen was good enough to provide some show ideas, uh, as uh, she's got some ideas sketched out. And the first show that she sent us as an idea is called The March of the Mayflies. And uh, I've got to know more about this show. What's going on with that show? What's that going to be about? Well, I think that was inspired by cicadas. The fact that, you know, 17 years later, the cicadas have, you know, um, emerged. And that's what everybody's talking about. But when I was growing up, we always dealt with mayflies. 
and mayflies emerge. For us, they emerged for the most part yearly uh, until the, the well, for me, the Lake Erie story is that uh, it came very polluted was an in, and mayflies just didn't show up so much. And that was an indication. They are like the uh, canary in the coal mine for the Great Lakes. Uh, and, um, and, and, and so, mayflies are very, they are particular to the Great Lakes. Um, they're related to midges, but they're kind of the same, a little different. Our, our, our professor who's going to be on the show will pr- explain the differences. Um, but I think that uh, listeners may relate to the fact that um, the mayfly story um, actually has a connection with baseball, and all good stories have a connection with baseball. Oh, yeah. And um, so, uh, um, Cleveland Indians, I'm a big Cleveland Indian fan. They were playing the Yankees. It was 2007. It was the American League Division Series. Uh, best of five games. Yankees were down by a game. So, they are now uh, in Cleveland at Progressive Field. And um, uh, Andy Pettit for the Yankees was killing it. Just, you know, just sweeping the Indians. First six innings, um, just killed it. Um, by the seventh inning, starting to get tired, I guess, and uh, got a couple of Indians on base. So, Joe Torre pulls him out, puts in a young guy by the name of uh, Jabba uh, Chamberlain. Oh, very official, very good uh, uh, pitcher for the Yankees, but a young guy. And um, he saves the seventh for the Yankees. They go into the uh, bottom of the eighth. Yan- uh, Indians are up. And all of a sudden, a swarm of midges and mayflies come swooping in. <laughs> Um, to the stadium and concentrates in center, right in the in the infield. Why the infield? I don't know. A little cloud. They went, they went. They went right for Jabba. They got right to Jeter. Um, covered themselves and they were freaking out. <laughs> now the Indians, I think, were laughing about this. There it's, is a it's guy. Not an unusual phenomenon for them, right? But it couldn't have been a better timing for the Indians. Um, and so. <laughs> people who don't know and i think even the the uh the uh, home base umpire was freaking out too so he runs to the dugout to get um bug spray and they're spraying each other they're spraying java uh you know um the whole infield <laughs> spraying themselves and each other well what none of them know is that bug spray is like um is is like perfume to mayflies it just <laughs> attracts right? them more so then now you that's have, what I call um, home field advantage right there. Yeah, well, I, mean, I love this story because they, it all becomes worse. It becomes a comedy of errors, you know, um, where um, and, and so what you see on Jabba's neck is nothing but his mayflies and midgets all on him. And it's freaking him out. And he's trying to pitch. And for some reason, Joe Torrey didn't take a break. He didn't say, let's take a break till the midgets go away and the mayflies go away. So, but he, he, there's a story in the newspaper where he says he's looking at Jabba and knows that Jabba's looking at him and can't see him for all of them. The bugs were just so immense and so dense. And and um, so eventually, so he starts pitching, and frankly, he blows it after that. Um, it took the Indians till the eleventh uh, to the eleventh inning to win two to one. But um, that's a great story, and actually, yeah, uh, eventually yeah, won the division on that. But yeah, they um, went. Did they win uh, the you know, series? They did. They beat the Yankees in that in that. Tw- they did in that series. Did. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, didn't win the World Series and haven't yet. Long-suffering Indians fan. But um, what's interesting about that is that when they swarm, they are really so dense and such a large, immense swarm, they are picked up on radar. 
Hmm. And um, in some years, like in 2018, you can see on radar moving literally, you know, on the coastline, about on the, on the southern shore, through Cleveland, wow. all the way across. And then they alight on the islands in Lake Erie, in the western basin of Lake Erie, wow. um, where we're pretty used to that. But um, 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 they, they are... They are a nuisance like cicadas are a nuisance. Okay. And I thought that um, since your readers are, you know, coastal interest folks and they do yeah. like the ecology of things, um, and the Great Lakes has a lot of, we know, a lot of great ecology, a lot of flora, a lot of fauna, a lot of fish. Um, but I think these human experiences that um, interact with yeah. that resource called the Great Lakes is also just fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to having uh, Dr. Carmen Trisler. Uh, she's a retired professor from Wittenberg University of Ohio, spent a lot of time every summer uh, up on the lakes and in the Bahamas, and uh, is our expert on, on mayflies. We really look forward to hearing more about it. Look, we, we always love a bug show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, no, we do. No, they, they oh, squall well. Entomology. Entomology. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of our, our boy, uh, the lobster scientist. Dr. Uh, yeah. Joe Kunkel. Dr. Kunkel, who was a cockroach expert before becoming a lobster expert That's in right. his early career. He's at, uh, he followed the carapace. Yeah, yeah, he's a... Fascinating. I love the. I, I love that story. First of all, and I and I hope that those kinds of stories and that kind of vivid uh, experience uh, is included in these discussions because it's it is fascinating to understand uh, the tech, the biology, and and we're going to learn something, but it's also going to be entertaining and connected to the human experience. Uh, you mentioned the heyday of the Great Lakes that Tyler was talking about. Uh, when it was the economic cornerstone of the United States in that region of the country. Uh, that's why I like your third show idea, Dance Halls in the Full Dress Balls. I got to think that's all about back in the day when it was rocking and rolling. When when are we talking about? Yeah, tell us about Are we about talking this. about the Roaring Twenties? Are we talking about the know. 1880s? What, yeah. what is the rock and roll? Yeah. Er, earlier. Um, really? In the late 1800s. Ah, yeah, okay. We, yeah. Uh, President Taft from Ohio visited the islands. It's, that's a big deal we talk about. <laughs> but, you know, so in Taft's time. Um, <laughs> the Taft administration. Um, yeah, but, but uh, st stories, I mean, incredible dance halls that were built um, on, uh, again, my stories personally are very much about the Lake Erie experience. And But please know we're going we're gonna to talk about the lakes as a whole because they're all beautiful, all fantastic. Um, but on an island in Lake Erie called South Bass Island, um, there was an incredible um, resort built, all made of wood. And I'm embarrassed to say that at the single moment, I can't remember the name, but I'm sure um, we can we can find out. But it was in its heyday. It was incredible. It had, you know, um, beautiful um, uh, outdoor pools and um, it was very la-di-da. And um, there just comes a point, you know, and you, you, you know that times change. Um, and it just kind of fell by the wayside and eventually burned down. Hmm. I mean, I have to say, I don't know if that's on purpose because on another island where I'm from, <clears throat> Middle Bass Island was a, a baby version of that. A beautiful dance hall. It also burned down. So I don't know if that had to do with Some just timing or the fact that they were uh, all made of wood. Yes. Um, and, um, 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 you know, at the time, I'm sure they're still using a lot of candles, even though people were using yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, you know, could oil be a little competition. Like uh, wouldn't be unheard yeah. of in, things uh, changed. in the world. South Bass yeah. Island. Key West of Lake Erie. The Key West of Lake Erie. <laughs> Some people say that. Yeah. There is a whole thing. 
There's a whole thing about some of the South Bassers in the winter going down to Key West. They uh, get out of Sloppy Joe's. It's like a oh, putting bay night there. So uh, this is interesting because we're back at, let's say we're in the mid-1800s to the 1870s or so. Uh, this is a period of, of economic, uh, I guess, um, was it was it a strong economy back then in the region? I guess so. That would uh, support these kind of uh, extravagant resort communities along the Great Lakes. Is that what was going on? What was driving the wealth, I guess? Yeah. Well, speaking for having been to Duluth a number of times, the wealth was being driven by people who own the mines. Okay. Um, beautiful homes in Duluth that are left from those that age. Um, and remember, you had Carnegie out of Pittsburgh, um, yeah. and I think he was the steel business writer. Yeah. I mean, there's so so really these driven by big industrialization and really these large industrial magnets, you know, that magnets who are, who um, happen to be in the area. So um, you made the comment about the Great Lakes when it was kind of the economic driver, and I think a lot of people would say that it still is, okay. given the fact that. Uh, millions and millions and millions and millions of people live around the Great Lakes. And I'm guessing, I think it's just 40% of the GDP comes out of the Great Lakes region. Is that I, I'm right? going to have to find See? chase that down. So yeah. it is Things it is still learn. incredible, yeah. even if they're not making Pontiacs anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, that's actually, I think, maybe one of the most interesting things about the Great Lakes region to me now as a uh, looking at it from from the perspective of the of the present is that this blue economy tradition there between the transportation, the resources around the lakes, the fisheries within the lakes, um, this and, and the fact that yeah. uh, by the in, throughout my lifetime, uh, the Great Lakes region was not described that way. That was not the way that I w grew up understanding. I didn't understand it from from a proper historical kind of development, yeah. evolutionary perspective. Yeah. It was like, that's where they make cars. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of the way it was. <laughs> right. Like this is the car Detroit muscle. <laughs> that's right. Uh, uh, Helen, in the uh, in in the show ideas list, I got to just name a few of these off and ask you to uh, fill in the ones that you wish. But the Mayfly show, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, where the boats go, about the cargo vessel traffics in the nooks and crannies of the Great Lakes over history, uh, the dance halls, a dress ball show. I can, this sounds really fabulous. Um, the fine island wine, the history of wineries in the Great Lakes. Who knew? I didn't. You know, I, I, mean, I did so either. much to learn. Know about the Great Lakes region of the United States and what tour guide? I would love to get my hands on a bottle yeah. of some. <laughs> we should. We, we can make that happen. We should have an inaugural kickoff with the publication of the release of the first North Coast Chronicles podcast we need to have Great Lakes Bottle Wine title. we should we should uh, we'll, we'll, we'll track one down <laughs> uh, christen the show that's right <laughs> well let's let's do it um, at least after noon <laughs> my time. and uh, I will do the same can you tell us about the Great Portage of 1829 which was one Ooh. of the possible topic ideas that you've mentioned for your show well, you know, um, it's well, 1829 is when the Welland Canal was built to take ships around Niagara Falls. So to me, that is like the great wow. portage, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, how do how do you lift these ships almost on your shoulders and take them around Niagara Falls? That's pretty intimidating. Um, but in order to become an international trading marketplace, um, the Canadians and the Welland Canal is entirely in Canadian um, waters. Um, was built. And um, 
we're going to, I'm hoping I can get folks um, that manage the Welland Canal. And I, it's been a couple of years since I talked to those folks, but I know I can. Because the the, the engineering at the time, it's a, I, I likened it a little bit to like building the first Panama Canal. Hmm. Um, although 1829 is pretty, um, think about that. That's only um, like 10 years after the War of 1812. And it's so holy smokes. Um, it's how like did they 40 do it? years before the Suez Canal, just, you know. Yeah. Thank you. 30. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. So, so um, I've been on the Welland Canal and they are, um, they have been rebuilt since 1829, but they're still pretty small, relatively speaking, and have an old look to them. I know that they function really well. You know, they're, I think they're still gravity fed um, locks uh, and dams, but um, they're so um, interesting. Uh, and they have a whole different personality than the locks on the St. Lawrence River. Um, because one, the St. Lawrence, the, the river, the locks on the St. Lawrence River are were built in the late fifties, so totally different. Um, but you almost have to see them because when you get in there, um, uh, whether you're on a cargo ship or whether you're, uh, I've, I've done it on a cargo ship. I've done it on more like you know boats or tugboats owned by probably the the Seaway Authority folks. Um, and those walls, look, the whole place looks really thin and really high. And everything seems like, I mean, obviously it's all now concrete on the sides, but, you know, you see a lot of that. What used to be just wood locks opening wow. and closing. I find that, so I, I'm, I think this is, it's kind of an engineering phenomenon, one of many uh, around the country, but um, I'm looking forward to having some, it's a little more technical conversation and um, what was the motivation, um, because it was very much a Canadian interest. Uh, and the Canadians um, have taken the lead historically uh, in, in, developing and maintaining the locks they were the ones who really wanted to build the the locks on the st lawrence river um and we kind of paddled after them um to help because they were ready to do the whole thing themselves and at some point um i think president eisenhower said you know we, we're going to have to do it so so thank you for that i I'm, I'm also looking forward to that one why do you think that is why why do you suppose the canadians were uh more ambitious there in terms of getting the canals built and seeing the economic uh, potential of the Great Lakes? Grain. Grain. They wanted to move grain out of the Great Lakes. Yeah, Manitoba. Uh, Thunder Bay, man. It, you know, they, now, today, they are moving a lot of that grain by rail to the West Coast. Doesn't make the Great Lakes folks happy, but mm. they do, and that's their right to do it. But historically, everything, they wanted to move grain out for the international markets. Nice. And that's when you'd use a salty. Is that right? That's correct. Well, yes. See, you already know the lingo. <laughs> Got it. This is what's going to be great about Helen's show and why I love the fact that the ASPN podcast community is a lot of professionals who've invested years, decades of their life in the subject area that they're uh, connected to. And Helen, your position with the Committee on U.S. Maritime Transportation uh, for uh, now more than 10 years is 15 years is 15 in july yeah is uh it, it's meaningful because it informs the discussion and it forms the perspective you know you're listening to someone who understands the intricacies and what i love about your show is you're mixing together this deep understanding of shipping in the great lakes and international trade with the culture and the background and the history of the great lakes i'm you know i'm look i am i am looking i don't know enough about the great lakes i'm looking forward to this show and i love the style yeah i love the yeah, blend i, do I think too. it's a really good you know it's like that pie crust 
<laughs> now we oh have, man, okay. you had to mention the pie crust. <laughs> well, Tyler, I, I you got to talk right. about. It. Tyler's got. You want to know how to make it. a pie crust? Just video me or just Google me and find out. <laughs> yeah, you crust. just. I mean, I, I'll. I will not put I'm a so link. Personal. I'm not going to drive traffic. But if you want to see Helen Brawl make a pie crust, uh, uh, no, we can funny. make. We you know, let me know. We can, yeah, there's share a, that. Well, she you. did a YouTube video and it, uh, about how to do it. And Helen, do you have a good technique for pie crust? I mean, give us that. You're a Midwesterner. You got to be good at this. Um, um, yeah, I actually am. Um, pie crust can, you know, um, uh, can be um, uh, come puzzling because yes, um, because you have to you have to put them into a pan without breaking it all up. So there are tricks to the trade. And my mother taught me how to make it. I I've always felt comfortable with it. Always had a knack. Um, I, I know that sounds corny to say no, that, but I love people it. do whine about making pie crust as being very hard. Um, my wife, and, uh, my wife know, so, struggles with she. Yeah, tricky. Yeah. You gotta well, get and also it the store bought ones are so tasty. The frozen ones are pretty good, so <laughs> people don't bother so much. But um, it's the one I make a Dutch apple pie. It's the one I make every year. I don't I don't make any other pie. Hmm. Um, you go out and you pick your apples, right? And you have more apples than you need, and then you start making pies. Um, and everybody, um, they're not they're not low in calorie but boy are they good yeah well you know once a year absolutely That's permitted right, as an indulgence yeah. so when you were growing up um uh when uh, was uh, was your mother a, a a great baker yeah but uh, sure but she was better cook i mean she uh, um um actually went to college to be a, a in home econ- economics yeah she she learned that's you could do that then get a degree in home economics and that's what she did um so she um she was i think classic midwest meat potatoes vegetable salad every night meat potato vegetable salad well it gets Um, chilly up there on the shoreline of lake erie in the winter time you got to have some something that'll stick to your bones is what they say (laughs) formal sunday dinner that you know early early sunday dinner all went in the dining room and Set the table and uh, had a yeah. Sunday dinner. I loved growing up in a big family. I mean, it was raucous and there were, you know, but I, I did I did love growing up in a big family. I have, still have very close relationship with all of my uh, brothers and sisters. Well, that that's good. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> I gotta say, thing. I gotta say, this is how little I know about someone to borrow money from. You know, that's do- <laughs> occasionally that's true. <laughs> but uh, one of the interesting uh, kind of realizations I had was uh, there was a, a few years ago. My wife and I decided to go. Uh, my wife is a is a is a Texan, and she has never experienced it. She said real winter, and she said over Christmas, she said I want to go someplace where there's real winter. So for a Christmas trip, we decided to go to Ely, Minnesota and go dog sledding. And uh, we flew into Minneapolis, St. Paul and drove up to Ely, but we went through Duluth on the way. And I had not been through this part of the country. And I do remember stopping in December and seeing these really massive ships in the harbor in Duluth and thinking, my God, these ships are ocean-going vessels that can get all the way into the Midwest part of the country. And this is obviously something everybody in the Great Lakes region knows. But this idea that ocean-going ships can get all the way to Minnesota and carry this international trade through the Great Lakes was really kind of a surprise to me, even though I'm sort of generally aware of it. But just seeing the ship there was, was stunning. Well, it is our fourth seacoast, so um, yeah. yeah. I just have to say, you know, it, from where your perspective was in Duluth, they do look very large. And if you happen to see a thousand footer, that is large. But if you take one of the Great Lakes size ships, which 
I think the largest, the, the, the 780 feet long is I think the max you can get through the locks on the St. Lawrence River. If you put them next to a container ship, you know, the container ships are so big that yeah. if you put one behind the capital, U.S. Capitol, the U.S. Capitol looks like a toy. They are so big. Yeah. Um, so that is that has always been one of the challenges in Great Lakes shipping is that they're limited by size and what they can do because of the locks. And also, it's not a year-round um, marketplace. Um, the the uh, You know, if you get nine and a half months, you're, you're doing pretty well. And in that, in is that because of the freezing? Half, yeah. Yeah, because the freezing, then they yeah. just everything shuts down. The locks, Army Corps shuts down the locks at the Sioux, uh, the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway folks. They shut down the locks. It's all because of ice. But then that's why there's a, a, a number of good icebreakers, Coast Guard runs in the Great Lakes to break out the ice um, to get the ships out um, as early as they can in the spring. Well, you mentioned. I'm glad you mentioned icebreakers because I understand there is a possibility that uh, during this show that you might be on board a Coast Guard cutter icebreaker, the Healy, and that there is some possibility, now this is in the bag yet, uh, that we might be hearing from you from the ship. Um, can you tell us about what uh, what's on the horizon there? Can you fill that in a little bit? I know it's not totally decided at this it point. It is not. Uh, yeah, don't jinx it because okay, um, don't <laughs> I am at the I mercy of the U.S. Coast Guard here. And as someone explained it to me, there's a lot of names on that dance card to get on that ship for that cruise. So um, it's yet to be determined, fingers crossed. But should I be lucky enough to get on there? Um, uh, it uh, The... Uh, the um, uh, Healy, the Coast Guard Cutter Healy is a medium icebreaker uh, owned by the U.S. Coast Guard, built in the 70s. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, all of our ships, uh, I think the Polar Star is built in the 70s. We are we don't have a lot of new icebreakers, although there are some um, uh, being uh, built right now. Um, but uh, the Healy um, is uh, out of Seattle, but it is pretty much stays just in the U.S. Arctic, where the Polar Star goes down to the Antarctic breakout um, for folks down there. But the Healy um, was built to be a research vessel. It's very unusual because another Coast Guard cutter, I mean, a federal ship other than ships like NOAA owns for their own use, um, was built to be a research vessel. I mean, it breaks ice, absolutely. Um, but it does a lot of work with the National Science Foundation, gets a lot of its funding oh. from National Science Foundation and the U.S. Navy um, for, for work that gets done. And then um, university folks, the biologists, the the scientists um, who are funded through National Science Foundation or from other some other source, you know, go to a central source where they can um, use. Uh, they're always looking for a ship to use, right, for their sampling. Um, so I was on the Healy um, in summer of 2019, uh, and it's fascinating um, to see the science full of. There are as many scientists on there as there are crew. It's a fascinating environment and the culture. Uh, and interestingly, for the first time, the Healy is going to make a trip through the Northwest Passage. Now, that's the passage. That's how you get around Canada to get from um, the Arctic Ocean to Maine, basically. You can go all right. the way. All then, the way around North America. You can basically. all the way around. Now, keep in mind, Northwest Passage is entirely in Canadian waters. Um, they're very protective of their waters, as they should be. Um, and it's, it's still, even though... Um, August uh, can be ice, a lot less ice. You just cannot say ice free. It is a very not quite yet fairly treacherous area, the Northwest Passage. Wow. So 
ships have made it um, with icebreaker um, company to make, you know, to have them just to take care of them. Um, also to save them if something goes awry. Um, but the um, Healy's going to make the trip. It's going to go all the way around, I believe, Man. starting towards the end of August out of Seward, Alaska. It will go to Greenland and then come down around and uh, come down to the uh, the East Coast. Um, there's talk about trying to get her get her get get her get her to um um, get around get get her around to get her washington dc area or um she's gonna head all the way down and i don't know wow uh, i think she may be heading all the way down and go through the panama canal well that i'm not going that long Uh, i'm you know don't know if i'm getting off first of all i don't know if i'm going at all don't jinx it okay we're not Um, gonna jinx it but if that happens it's an extraordinary opportunity absolutely Uh, the captain is a woman um mary ellen durley um a female captain and uh, I know her, and I'm looking forward to sailing with her. She's really good. Gosh. Can we can we hear can more we? about the captain? Wow. Well, Mary Ellen Durley is from Indiana. I actually interviewed her when I was on the Healy a couple of years ago. Huh. I'd actually have to go back and look it up. It's on the CMTS Facebook page. Uh, if you put in Durley or put in Healy, um, those uh, blogs will come up. And the, the CMTS, just as a quick reminder for our listeners, is the Committee on Marine... Transportation System. Systems, yeah. U.S. Committee on the Marine Transportation System. There it is. Or CMTS. Got it. And, uh, Which you um, run. Yeah, she's she was great. And uh, she talked about how she decided that she wanted to go to the Coast Guard Academy uh, and uh, from her area and um, what Coast Guard meant to her, um, you know, honor, courage, um, always ready, uh, you know, Semper Paratus. And um, she made her way. I think she was XO, which means she's second in command on the Polar Star. She is definitely a boat driver. You know, she's good at it. She knows her navigation. What was fun to be in the pilot house um, was that she was always teaching while she was up there. Always teaching. Um, The lieutenants who are, you know, making the way. um, You have a helmsman, but, you know, you have uh, a couple of officers uh, always get an ensign or lieutenant um, that are up on the deck. Um, so um, uh, up on the bridge, just listening to her yeah, on cool. the bridge, and she and so it was so interesting because she was always saying, so if if you're if you're um, you know uh, your actress, your electronic chart display would go out, what would you do? You know, and she she would challenge these uh, folks about how to manage yeah, one of those because, captains because um, you know um, all of the youngsters um, are so dependent on looking at electronics they forget yeah, to look out yeah. the window. Yeah, so she, break she was out just the trying section. to teach them, but what do you do if you don't have, yeah. um, you know, the electronics? I love well, it. Well, I, I, okay, I'm not jinxing it, but I, I cannot tell you how much I would love to hear that show and you being on board and being able to bring us on that cruise. I mean, it would be very cool. It's historic. It I mean, be, the, it is the crossing is. of the Northwest Passage here with the with the thinning Amazing. of ice in the Arctic. This is the new frontier. I think it, and I I yeah. describe it, Helen, really as the last frontier almost on the planet earth because this is an area that has not been largely exploited for fisheries or minerals or shipping because of the just the 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 amount of ice but it's changing and there is a tremendous amount of interest in what's going on in these waterways in in the in the high north and i i'm just fascinated by it i think it's and you know here we are in the 21st century um, looking across the landscape of the North American continent as they did in 1800 and saying, wow, there is this vast place that no one has really gotten to yet. And we're going to see that again in the 21st century. And it's going to be in these Arctic areas, in the Antarctic area. And I'm just 
fascinated by it, and I can't wait to see how we as a human community handle this. And I'm hoping we don't exploit it in the manner that uh, we have with new territories in through history on the land where we really just beat the hell out of them and try to get everything we can out of them we've got to be more sensitive and i'm hoping we're smarter so it's, that's why I'm, I'm this if you get on this boat i i'm just dying to hear what you have to say about it and what that crew and the scientists have to say about that yeah i uh, me too I mean, um, when you when you talk to the scientists, <laughs> I want to write a letter. Who do I write a letter to? I want to start a campaign. We need to start. No, we oh, won't I, do that. We won't. Uh, I know it's a professional funny. thing. But yeah. I'm just well, you know, it's, it's going to have a little less um, research stops. Um, but talking to the scientists and the different things that they do on those vessels is fascinating. I will tell you when I was on there. Um, normally, when by the time we hit. You know, we were above the Arctic Circle. We would have been in ice. I mean, years ago, you would have been in ice. Years ago, you couldn't have gotten through the Bering Strait. Hmm. It's all open waters up there. Wow. Um, and they are seeing the water column is changing. The, the presence of, uh, of um, um, mammals, animals, fish is changing dramatically. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I know you know that um, the impact of climate change is far more um, impactful in the oh. Arctic than anywhere else on Earth, and it's warming faster than any time. And, um, if we don't do something, if we don't address it, um, it will be to our peril. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real deal. It's more vivid in the northern uh, latitudes. Uh, clearly, happening huge changes going on. And you know the, what what tells me about it is on coastal news today. I, I watch carefully to see what the Russians are doing up in the Arctic Circle and the investments that are being made in ports and infrastructure and energy export and development in the Arctic Circle now. Uh, the investments the Russians are making in nuclear-powered icebreakers, I believe they've got five under construction. They have already built and floated a nuclear power plant into the Arctic Circle to power uh, new, new port terminals to, for import and export of LNG. There's a lot going on up there. And I'm wondering, Helen, are we, how are we doing in that discussion as Americans? Are we cognizant of this are we are we aware are you comfortable with where we're headed in terms of policy up in the arctic region well the Sorry federal government is absolutely aware yeah and the department of defense is absolutely aware and the biologists and the fisheries people at NOAA are absolutely aware uh and i believe that this white house will certainly undertake um, making it a priority. There is legislation pending in Congress right now um, to make the executive uh, Arctic Executive Steering Committee, which was a creation under Obama, to make it permanent. Um, and that is kind of like the CMTS, where you the multi-agencies, the way you deal with interagency issues, because um, Arctic issues are interagency, interdepartmental issues yeah. um, in so many ways. And, and let's not forget that uh, the tribal um, uh, experience yeah, right. up there is, is incredibly unique and special. And their um, sustainable, uh, historical way of life is absolutely threatened. Um, villages are, are getting inundated, uh, coastal inundation. Um, they are seeing mammals in their hunting that they never saw before. Um, and um, fish are changing, and um, yeah, the impact is just goes all the way down th through the food chain, right? Um, through way of life, through history. Um, but please know that yes, um, there um, the United States is very well aware of what's going on. The question is um, the level of financial investment you want to make, um, 
there is no deep draft port in the Arctic, uh, north of the, the uh, well, even north of the Bering Strait, there's none. Uh, and uh, the next deep draft port is, um, I want to say Kodiak, it's 900 miles away. Hmm. So, um, it's, a, it's a vast area. There's just, it, it, we can't even begin, um, it's a tip of iceberg, so to speak, to begin talking about it. But um, please, if you ever begin to talk, would like to talk about it, gosh, there's so many people that know about it far better than I, and it's, yeah. a fa- it's, it's extraordinary. Well, Helen, uh, it is, and um, it's such a, a broad thing. We did do a show uh, back in uh, the fall of 2020 with Dr. Victoria Herman, uh, who is the president and managing director of the Arctic Institute, or at least she was at the time. I'm, I haven't uh, followed up to see if she still is. I assume she still is. Uh, and that was a fascinating show. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, Victoria um, really illustrated for us is how many categories of considerations there are. I mean, there are security considerations, there's shipping considerations, there's fuel savings considerations that could be a green thing. Yeah, Um, yeah. on the Northwest Passage, if it's open, transportation shipping routes are shorter. And then you have uh, First Nations and Native people considerations and the political powers and how do you convene them and how... How do how is this community yeah. of interests managed? Yeah. It is an incredibly dynamic and fascinating thing. I have to say, I find it. Um, while I agree that there is um, a way that we could really screw it up and do it, I I love the challenge for American leadership because to me it's like as yeah. you say, Peter, I'm it hoping. is it's a really it's a question of our day. How do we do we approach this differently than we have, say, other um, as frontier spaces of uh, natural resource development? And um, because of our history, yeah, can we be better at it this time? Well, Well, yes, of course. But also, how do we as Americans exert our influence to to do better as a global community? These issues are global. Yeah, one hundred percent. We are we are but a player. And so we have to lead by example. We have to, and this is a new challenge for yeah, us, Helen, I think. Yeah, what, Helen, what do you think about that? I kind of agree with that sentiment, Tyler. Oh, there's, absolutely, there's so many nooks and crannies of the subject. Uh, one of the things people are talking about right now is that um, because it is a global issue, um, there is uh, the Arctic Council. Uh, and the Arctic Council is, 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 um, is not like a formal body that, you know, you can. They do agreements, and they had a mutual signing of um, uh, banning on fishing in the Arctic Circle, which is or in the Arctic Ocean for a long time, which was a, a pretty big thing. But the Arctic Council has just been taken over by the Russians, yep. and they have not come out yet with a kind of their policy. You kind of when you when you when you um, are head of the Arctic Council, and the U.S. was head of the Arctic Council a number of years, a couple of years ago, rotating kind of leadership, a, yeah, right? Yeah, rotated, and mm-hmm. it rotates, and I think it goes for two years, right? Um, and you kind of have a theme. You know, what is what is it I want to lead with? And there's nothing yet out of Russia. I know everybody's mm. talking about it. State Department. There are a lot of folks at State Department dedicated to these kind of conversations, um, Alaska and the Arctic. Um, and everybody's just kind of waiting to see what the Russians, um, how they want to use the Arctic Council. It is not supposed to be for military or security purposes. It is about um, the resource. It is about um, marketplace. Um, but, um, and, and 
China, while it is not an Arctic nation in yeah. any way, shape, or form, is really making their presence known. I've noticed that they uh, they really have uh, staked a claim uh, in the region. Uh, I've seen it in a lot of different ways. Try to carry a few stories on Coastal News today when I see it, but. You know, this. I just want to say, Helen, uh, not to get too deep into the Arctic discussion, but this is, Tyler, what I love about the power of the American Trolling Podcast Network. Helen is coming onto the network with so much background, so much knowledge, with a very cool show, The North Coast Chronicles, that is not go- is going to be different, I think, than any other show on the network, not just regionally, but in terms of what she's going to be talking about. I- and it's just this community that we're trying to build of uh, a very interesting, very uh, influential and, and knowledgeable people to, to take us into their universe and into their world. And uh, it's such a privilege, Helen, to have you uh, on this network. And I have to say, Tyler, she called us up and said, you know what, would you guys be interested in doing a show? And we went, Yes, <laughs> we would. So, Helen, thank you for taking the initiative to to join this community. We are just thrilled to have you. Thanks. Honestly, I am so um, honored to be part of ASPN, and you guys have been just terrific to work with. And, you know, the Great Lakes are near and dear to my heart, and I cannot wait to share that passion and all of the things to, that uh, about the Great Lakes with this new podcast. So thanks so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Helen Broll. She is the host of the new North Coast Chronicle podcast coming to ASPN this month in June. Uh, she is serving currently as the executive director of the U.S. Committee on the Maritime Transportation System, CMTS. Look it up. Learn about it. Learn about Helen's work. And we look forward, Helen, to seeing your shows through the year on the uh, American Shoreline Podcast Network. What a thrill for everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jesus said